Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and we are here in beautiful Antigua, Guatemala. I'm here with my guest, Ben Fossen. Ben, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Uh, it's great to be on the podcast, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so Ben, um, I, just to get into it, one of the things that Ben did, among many other things, he actually lives primarily in Houston, Texas, but he co-founded Adoptees with Guatemalan Roots. He is a, uh, a person who uh, was born in Guatemala, but when he was a child, uh, a baby, uh, he had some Americans who adopted him, and he became part of their family. And we're going to go back, and that was in 1990? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to go through his story. But before we go to his story, I want to tell you how I met this person. I met him not here, but we are in one of my favorite places in the world, Antigua Cigars. So if you're ever in Antigua, you got to come by and see Lynn and Uve. Now, you may have just listened or watched a podcast with Lynn and Uve that I had here at Antigua Cigars. And so I encourage you, if you didn't watch that, go back and listen and watch that uh, fascinating story. But we are here at their cigar lounge in Antigua. And there was one, I spent a lot of time here, by the way, when I'm in Antigua. So if you, if you wonder why I like Antigua so much, well, this is where I spend a lot of my time in this lounge. It looks like a living room, doesn't it? And um, anyway, while I was here one day back in December of 2022, uh, just uh, four months ago, uh, Lynn said to me, oh, there's a young man who has come in here a few times that you need to meet. His name is Ben Fossen. And she told me a little bit about your story, Ben. And uh, within a couple of weeks, well, I found you on LinkedIn immediately while I was sitting here. And then within a couple of weeks, um, he and I actually had a, a call. And so uh, we also have a, a, a mutual passion for cigars. So cigars bring us together at Antigua Cigars now. So it's really nice to see that just a few months after learning about who you are, while I was sitting right over there, uh, we're now sitting right over here, and you're in Uve's chair, by the way, um, and, uh, and, and we're actually going to have some cigars and have a great conversation over a podcast. So pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, speaking of cigars, uh, we're here, and we thought we'd light a cigar to start this podcast off. We're going to be smoking the Reserva Original from Placencia Cigars. Now, I want to let you know that uh, while I love Placencia Cigars, they are not a sponsor of this podcast. I uh, just want to be very forthcoming. Uh, we're smoking this out of our love for Placencia. But I always do tell people, including the fine folks at Placencia, we do have sponsorship opportunities. So I'm happy to sponsor every podcast if you just want to send me cigars. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, we, uh, we're going to go ahead and light this. So let's go ahead and light that. You got the fancy lighter over there, Ben. Also... This is probably the moment where my parents who are watching tune out because they don't like that I smoke cigars. But as I tell a lot of people, including them, there's so many people I would never have met had it not been for the leaf, for the cigar leaf. So um, maybe one day I'll write a book about how it all started in a cigar lounge. But uh, Ben and I wouldn't know each other if it wasn't for the fact that I came to Antigua Cigar so often. 
By the way, when you're first getting a cigar going, you really got to puff it a bunch of times. So it's very difficult to start a podcast and talk and, uh, and, try, to, and try to get this cigar going. <laughs> so we got it going now. But if you see me, uh, we got the lights right here. We got some great um, coffee, uh, Guatemalan coffee, of course. The best coffee in the world. And it keeps between cigars and coffee. People wonder how I get so much stuff done, Lynn, and um, you know it's uh, this is why. So, anyway, um, okay. So back to Ben's story. So Ben, you were born in Guatemala, nineteen ninety. Yeah, that's correct. March nineteen ninety. And do you want to just tell a little story about uh, you know you you obviously were a baby, but maybe uh, about the people who adopted you, and maybe the parents that gave you up, and and where you ended up going. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm 32, I'm turning 33 next month. But yeah, I was born in Guatemala City in Zona Uno, so Zone One. Uh, my mother was a teenager and I was adopted at four months old to a family in Minnesota. I grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis and lived there, yeah, till I was in my early 20s. Uh, but yeah, I mean, really. Uh, wonderful parents had a, just a wonderful experience with adoption. Um, and uh, do you want me to talk a bit about my birth family here? If you'd like to. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So eight years ago, I got reconnected with my birth mother. I found out that I had five younger siblings here. Uh, we connected and it's kind of a crazy story. <clears throat> so my my younger siblings did not know that I existed, and my birth mother decided to tell my closest sister in age that, you know, there was another, that she had another son when she was a teenager. And, you know, she had been looking for me for quite a while, but had never thought to look on social media online. And uh, my sister was able to find me on Facebook almost immediately, I think within about five minutes. We the can- power of social media today. It's yeah. incredible how you can find people. You just you need a name, maybe a location, and that's it. Yeah, so we exchanged information. We quickly realized that, you know, I was in fact uh, part of the family. We exchanged WhatsApp numbers. You know, I spoke with them uh, on WhatsApp. You know, we did some video calls. And then uh, after speaking on the phone for about three months, I came down here to Guatemala and I lived at their house for one month. Wow. This was only how long after? Uh, about three months. Three months. So, and the other interesting thing is, okay, so obviously you were adopted. You you knew your family. You had some fi- biological family here in Guatemala. <laughs> but we all get crazy messages on Facebook of people claiming all sorts of things. So you had to have some trust, right? But uh, I guess how did you verify that process that this was indeed uh, a sibling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And yeah, I mean, there's many, I mean, I'm sure everyone's gotten those crazy messages on social media. So I, she was able to show me a picture of myself as a baby with my birth mother. You know, she knew the names. So my adoption was open. So when I was adopted in 1990, my adoptive parents and birth mother had a a reunion they met for about an hour so i knew all the names and we were able to quickly kind of verify all that information that's great um so let's talk about your your the family that adopted you in minnesota what was the motivation and also my understanding by the way since learning your story 
I've learned a lot more information that there was a large number of children adopted, I guess, from what period, the 80s and 90s? What period was it? Yeah, so adoption started, I think, in like the 70s, and it uh, happened throughout the 80s and 90s, and then in the 2000s was when like it was the heyday of adoption, I think. In the 2000s? Yeah. Wow. So it, uh, it shut down in 2008, but the 2000s to 2008 were probably the biggest numbers. I think wow. in the 2006, 7, and 8, there's about 5,000 children that were adopted every year. Wow. And, and between uh, the years that it started, you said in the 80s uh, and 2008, about how many children were adopted in Guatemala from not just the United States, but maybe other places as well combined? <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a bit tricky to give an exact number. So we've done some data modeling at our organization, Adoptees with Guatemalan Roots, and we our best estimate is around 50,000. There's really good records from the U.S. State Department on about 30,000 children that were adopted to the U.S. And then there's the ones that were adopted to Canada. But there's no good information on the individual European countries, as well as Australia, New Zealand, and Israel that also had Mm. adoptions as well. So of the 50,000, do you have a ballpark number of how many were in the United States? Yeah, we estimate it's around 30,000. Wow, so over 30,000 Guatemala children have been adopted by American families in the United States from roughly the 1980s through the early 2000s. Yeah. it's a lot of people. Um, you went, so tell, me, tell us a little bit about your family in Minnesota, and do you have any other siblings, and what's your family life like growing up there? By the way, I mean, you were a baby, so you didn't know how wonderful the weather was in Guatemala compared <laughs> to Minnesota, but I can't even imagine a be a bigger contrast yeah yeah one one thing i just wanted to add is kind of at the height of adoption i think it was recorded that one out of every 100 children born in the country were being put up for adoption wow so it's it's a very large number and there's a lot of children born in guatemala yeah so that's a very large number yeah. yes um but yeah as far as my family so they were interested in adoption because you know my parents didn't think they could have children they had been trying for quite a a number of years and uh, you know that they, I think they had heard through some friends that uh, ad- adoption from Guatemala was a good option and possible uh, my mother speaks Spanish and had lived in Venezuela after high school d- did an exchange program there so for her you know it, it kind of seemed like a good fit um, and then it turns out that they could have children so I have three younger siblings so I'm uh, one of four children so I'm the oldest I'm the only one adopted, but I have three younger siblings that are their biological children. Yeah, it's funny how uh, life works that way. Um, you know, maybe maybe a little maybe a little karma, a little luck coming their way. Couldn't have children. Went ahead and opened their heart to adopt some children, and maybe God said, "Hey, it's time for uh, time for you to let me let you have some other children as well." So that's pretty awesome. So you have uh, three other siblings there in Minnesota. So uh, Ben, tell me a little bit about your path growing up. Uh, maybe where your what your educational path was, and um, and 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 where you find yourself now. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis. I went to the University of Minnesota, and uh, I think that was a pretty eye-opening experience for me. You know, I grew up in a pretty uh, 
white upper middle class suburb and went to a private prep school in Minneapolis or in a suburb called Egan. And I was just exposed to a lot of different cultures. And I think that's, I had also gone to Guatemala for the first time at 16 years old. We did uh, uh, like a one month tour of the country, Satical, Antigua, we went to the lake, kind of just did just a really nice tour of everything. And that really, at that age, kind of really started my interest and passion to learn and know more about Guatemala. And I think as I went to college, I kind of was exposed to more. I met some Guatemalans in, at the University of Minnesota that were foreign exchange students. And uh, that really kind of just lit a passion in me to learn and come back here more often. And uh, how was your Spanish? It's gotten better, but I mean, it's, I've learned entirely as an adult. I... You know, my parents did a good job of trying to connect me back to Guatemala as a kid. But, you know, I just really wasn't that interested, to be honest. You know, my mom would try to teach us Spanish, and I just didn't want to learn for whatever reason. Well, you know, I have a similar path. My, I wasn't born uh, outside the United States. I was born in Miami. Uh, my dad is from Cuba, though, but so Miami, some people might say that's part of Cuba but uh, <laughs> these days. But... but um, yeah, my dad also did try to teach us when we were kids. And, you know, like you said, it's kind of like when you're a kid. I don't know. I think I might have told my dad a few times, Dad, this is America. Why do we need to know another language, right? So uh, there's also an old joke uh, that I've heard a few times going around now. It says, you know, what do you call someone that knows two languages, right? Bilingual. What do you call someone that knows one language? American. <laughs> so, but anyway, but, but that's us. So even like children of immigrants, like myself, my dad being an immigrant, um, somebody who was actually an immigrant yourself as a baby, um, who came as well. Um, you know, but a lot of times the, the language is lost in just one generation, but, and now you and I as adults are trying to re, you know, relearn it and, and try to try to fit back in here in a, in a Hispanic country and culture like Guatemala. But that's, uh, that's really awesome, and you went on. Um, so uh, what kind of work do you – well, I'm going to ask you another question uh, before we get into what you do now for work. Uh, I always like to ask this question on this, on this since we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, and that is uh, what was your first job in life? <laughs> My first job in life? I think I was probably 17. I worked at a local hardware store. And what did you learn from it? Any, anything you learned – that maybe you still that still makes an impression on you today. Yeah, so I mean, I was a cashier at the. I mean, it, I could walk to the hardware store. I think I learned just a lot of good, you know, life skills, discipline, what it means to be good at customer service, interacting with people. You know, in some ways, I don't know how I got hired because I did not know much about hardware, but I learned a lot of just like kind of on the job how to help people, even if I don't necessarily know the ins and outs of, you know, what project they're working on, how to help them find, you know, the particular screw or tool that they're needing. That's good. Well, um, okay. So then you, you graduate college. What is your, what is your career path then from, from, from the university of Minnesota? Um, I don't know if you did any other, uh, education, but, uh, yeah. What is your, what is your then career path to what you're doing now? Yeah, so I studied computer science at the University of Minnesota. I also did an internship here at Universidad del Valle in Guatemala City. Oh, really? During college? Yeah, so it was my sophomore year. Oh, cool. So you came here for how long? Uh, I, was a, I think it was four months. Oh, wow. In Guatemala City? Yeah. Wow. So, so you've got two, 
Sounds like impressionable young experiences. When you were 16, you came with your family on a vacation, or how did that work? Yeah, so it was a month-long vacation. Yeah, and then and you went to Tikal and all the great places that Guatemala has to offer. And then coming here uh, in college and, and getting to spend a semester here. That's awesome. So great. So so you, you graduate from University of Minnesota. Sorry, let me continue. Let you continue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that, that one summer here doing that internship at the Valle was... I mean, the reason why I wanted to do it was because I wanted to experience what it was like to live in Guatemala, not just come here on vacation. Mm. Uh, so I actually lived with a good friend of mine. I mean, we're still pretty good friends today. He had done an exchange program in Minnesota, and that's how we connected. So I lived with him and his family and, you know, got the experience, what it's like to, to work here, the morning commute and the terrible traffic. Uh, but I loved it. I made a lot of friends that, you know, are lifelong friends and just got to experience Guatemala. Um, and I did a project at the biology department. It was a computer science program, so I wrote some code for them. But yeah, after college, I, you know, have worked as a software engineer for the first couple of years. And in my early 20s is kind of when I first kind of caught on with the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, four friends and I, we started uh, an app called Mural, and it was a tech startup. Mural? Yeah. Cool. So this was, I can talk a little bit about it. So this was yeah. back, Instagram had launched maybe four years before this. And if you remember like the old Instagram where it was just the square pictures, they would kind of lower the photo quality. It, I mean, people were using a lot of filters. Mm -hmm. And the idea came from, so I mean, I was one of the co-founders and I worked as the CTO there. <clears throat> so one of the founders was into photography and he realized that I'm taking these beautiful pictures. I think he was in Thailand. And he's like, I want to take these beautiful pictures and share them. And it was this beautiful landscape picture of the ocean. And he's like, I'm putting it on Instagram, but I have to crop it and put it into a square. And this app is not really meant for people who are in, who want to take landscape pictures, yeah. but also who are photography enthusiasts or professional photographers. Yeah, it's funny. Instagram kind of changed because when the, these phones started coming out, Everybody always said to turn your phone sideways to take the, take it uh, horizontal, and then um, but then, uh, the, then Instagram kind of changed how everybody takes photos now. We all take them vertical, um, and Facebook has even adapted a little bit to that. Uh, but it's it's always confusing, by the way, for you know if you start like a YouTube channel uh, and you're out doing travel stuff, and you're like, I want to capture video for both YouTube. And Instagram, <laughs> so and I and I was just with a friend who's a big influencer, TikTok, you know, Instagram and all that. But he's starting a YouTube channel, and he's got another friend helping him. And they're like, "Oh shoot, we forgot to do that one," you know, horizontal. Because of, so yeah, anyway. But it's kind of cool. So mural, you guys were you were like trying to create something that would capture the landscape photos more. Yeah. So we wanted to put the focus on the photos. I mean, it still had like the social media aspects, you know, you can like, share, make comments, but, and we weren't degrading the photo quality. And I mean, it was, it really resonated with photographers and especially like landscape photographers, uh, sports photographers. So what happened with Mural and what did you learn from the experience? Yeah, so I mean, it did not it succeed. I think we worked on it for about 
a year and a half, two years before we decide to call it quits. Uh, but I mean, honestly, it was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot. It was a huge learning experience. You know, even though we ended up failing, you know, it was cool to see Instagram a couple years later, like allow uh, those landscape po- uh, pictures that you, where you don't degrade the photo quality. So I, I think we had an idea, um, but I mean, it is hard to compete with, you know, existing brands like that. But yeah, even though we failed, I learned a lot about what it meant to manage a team of engineers, what it means to, you know, get a product from an idea to something that's on the app or on the Apple App Store. And I think, I mean, since I study computer science, you know, that's something I hear a lot is like, oh, I have an idea, like I'm going to make an app and very few people actually follow through on that. And it's a, it's a lot of work to, to make that happen. So uh, I'd say that was probably the biggest takeaway is learning how yeah, to do that. That's good. You know, I read a book maybe 10 or 12 years ago now called Making Ideas Happen by Scott Belsky. I still think about it, especially when I meet entrepreneurs like you who, uh, you know, what Scott Belsky says in that book is, the human being, we ha- we literally have like hundreds, maybe thousands of ideas go through our head like every day. Some we're not as conscious of, but even the ones we're conscious of, they never leave our brain. We can never we never share them with anyone, and so that's the first step is just simply to tell someone to share your idea. The next step is then to take action, right? So that's what entrepreneurs do: they take action on the ideas, they test, they try, they fail, they learn, they try again and they apply maybe some of the new lessons. So what I always love learning from entrepreneurs, and I hope one of the reasons I have this podcast is because I want people listening to understand failure is okay. It's part of the trial and error. It's part of testing. And you may not even, that one thing might fail, like that actual business idea you have or something you know, you're know you doing that might fail, but you're gonna take the learning experience and apply it to new things in life later just as, as Ben is doing right here. So, so Ben, you, you, you try that. Uh, that was kind of what, during or just after college? Yeah, it was my early, I think I was between 23 and 25 when we were doing that. And then, and then where did you uh, eventually end up uh, with, with your career? Yeah, so this, we were doing this in the, kind of the startup scene in Minneapolis. And uh, after that, you know, we'd worked really hard on this project, decided to call it quits. I, uh, Kind of needed a break from being a tech entrepreneur for a bit, so I moved to St. Louis and started working for an investment fund there, doing working kind of on the data modeling side and uh, kind of asset allocation portfolio allocation work there. And when I was in St. Louis, that's when I got connected with other people that were adopted from Guatemala, and you know I hadn't met a few other people that were adopted growing up but they were all younger than me and there wasn't really much like connection there but so it was the first time that I met somebody who was my age and we just had a lot to talk about a lot in common and you know we found out that there's other people in St. Louis that were also adopted from Guatemala it turns out there, there was a lot of that that was kind of one of the hubs of where people were adopted to hmm. and we got connected with some other people around the country and uh, yeah, that, that first guy that I met there, uh, about a year late after that, him and uh, four of us, so five of us in total started Adoptees with Guatemalan Roots. And, uh, you know, we weren't the first, uh, there's a, the first organization to do this, but we kind of looked and saw that there's a lot of 
Guatemalan adoption organizations that are run by adoptive parents, or they're either, you know, they were Facebook groups, but we wanted to kind of make this idea that we had into an actual nonprofit, something that we could could build on for the future. Um, and, you know, ideally kind of do advocacy work here in Guatemala. You know, we've done some lobbying with the Guatemalan government, but also have a really long-term impact on the country. That's great. So you founded, co-founded this in 2019? Yeah. And, um, and, and you've, by the way, you sent me a paper you wrote, which is fantastic. Is that paper available somewhere? The one it's it's a it's basically research on all the statistics about the uh, adoptees from Guatemala. Yeah, so that paper should be available on our website. I think. Okay, so the website is uh, guateroots.org. Guateroots.org. So G U A T E roots.org. So be sure to check that out. I actually went to the website ahead of this interview. And it's a really nice looking website, first of all. And it's got a lot of great information on there. I was also impressed. So you're the, are you the chair of the board? Yeah. So there's a board of directors. Uh, ben here is the chair of the board. They've got staff. Um, I see that you have a, a, an event, so some kind of event coming up in Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah. So we're having our fourth annual conference in Washington, D.C. So the first, we did it, I think it was 20, so the, I think it was 2018, so it was actually before we became an organization. We hosted a really informal kind of get-together at a hotel in Washington, D.C., and then, like, since then, I've continued to refine it and, you know, bring in better speakers and make it a bit more formal. But, yeah, it's actually kind of interesting that you mentioned the website. So our first website was terrible <laughs> but i mean this kind of speaks to the you know you got to put something out there and right. you learn by doing as an entrepreneur i didn't know how to do web design i didn't know how to make a website but i knew if we wanted to have a presence we need to have a website mm-hmm. you know that's important we also didn't have a ton of money when we started the organization you know we were entirely funding it on our own so it's like you know, well, I, I know I can learn this. I believe that I have the skills to learn this. So we put out something, you know, it was pretty bad, but, you know, we kind of just refined it. We looked at other organizations in Guatemala that had good websites, and we basically just figured out how do we kind of emulate that. And then, you know, we just kept iterating on it until we got something that I think is a really quality product. So um, it's a nonprofit organization. Uh, yeah. People can donate to it. Yeah. In, in the U.S., you can get a tax deduction for it, right? Yes. So people, come on. Uh, you know, it's a good time to do that. But anyway, um, the people all working on uh, for the organization and and also um, on the board and everything, is it is everybody running it uh, an adoptee? Yeah, so everyone is an adoptee. We do have one person who's non-adopted, but she's Guatemalan, is kind of an expert in the in the field. So she's on our board, and it kind of just made sense to have yeah. kind of that connection back here. Well, that's great. So uh, something that we talked about before, and I thought maybe it might be nice to explain to people. So, you know, first of all, I've lived in Guatemala for most of 2021, I spent a lot of time here over the last two years. I've been, you know, um, I've talked about this on previous episodes. We've done about 12 or 13 episodes now of this podcast in Guatemala. So it's a wonderful country. I lived primarily in Guatemala City when I'm here, but I come to Antigua a lot, not too far. 
I've I've gone to places like Lake Atitlan a bunch of times to call Quetzaltenango, Shaylitz. It's a beautiful country. So there's plenty of people here actually doing well, but there's also probably about half the people in this country living in poverty and some in extreme poverty. And so I think that also takes a lot of the headlines. Most people in the United States do not have never come to Guatemala. Guatemala is not really in their mindset. This is my perspective, by the way. I'm just telling you what from my from just everything I've I've perceived. And to be honest with you, before I had a friend, my friend Kyle Hua. Uh, in 2019, he came down to Guatemala just to learn Spanish for like six or nine months, lived primarily here in Antigua, but also in Guatemala City. And when he told me he was leaving his job to come down to Guatemala to learn Spanish, I was like, really? Uh, and and then I said, uh, you know, I've never been to Central America at all. Been to Mexico a couple times, but never Central America. So I'd love to uh, to come down and visit you while you're down here. So that's what prompted my first visit here. But I thought I think about it later and I'm thinking, you know, it even took me just four years ago, as much as I love Guatemala right now, and I preach Guatemala to the world, I love bringing new people here on different trips. Just think about it. Four years ago, I had never been to Guatemala. It wasn't even in my mindset to come here. And I think sometimes it's just like this wasn't part of a historical travel pattern for a lot of Americans. You know, they go to Europe, they go to Mexico, maybe the Caribbean, I don't know, maybe Asia, places like that, right? And so they forget to come. They don't really think about this. It's not the first place. When they do come to Central America, they might go to like Costa Rica, right? Mm -hmm. Which I still haven't been to, actually. (laughs) Um, So I say all that because it's just interesting to think about. uh, But how many people do live in poverty here? And also, I do think that there's maybe this history of violence here. There was a civil war here from the 60s to the 90s. There was a lot of gang violence maybe in the decade or so after that ended, particularly in, in the urban areas. Uh, there's probably still some, you know, there's plenty of corruption, I'm sure, in, in parts of the country, <laughs> to say the least. But, um, but when you live in Guatemala City today in 2023, it's pretty much a normal modern city to me for most part. I mean, you, you get just about anything here. There's a lot of international brands and... Uh, and that's telling me, Francisco, you need to, to stop. There's a buzzer. You need to start answering, uh, <laughs> letting the, the, the man answer a question here. Uh, no, but anyway, we're here in a working business at Antigua Cigar. So every once in a while, someone's got to buzz the door and, um, and, and come get a cigar. So that's what, uh, that's what we're doing here. But anyway, uh, that's, that's what I love. I love actually coming to businesses that are actually like functioning, working places. And we're actually here before hours, uh, to believe it or not. But anyway, I say all that because the... In order to adopt a child in Guatemala, you had to have some some form of wealth. Maybe not like totally like rich one percent type person, but I mean, uh, how expensive was it to actually adopt a child in Guatemala? Yeah. So it, yeah, I mean, you're definitely right on that. Like it was not cheap. So it really varies depending on what year you're talking about. I think in the '90s the cost was about ten thousand dollars. In the 80s and 70s, we really don't have much information on the the cost. But then in the 2000s, that's when it got really expensive. I think on average, it was about $20,000. But the highest we've heard is about $40,000. And by the way, that's... So that's... Who are they paying, by the way? Yeah, so a lot of this money would go to the adoption agency, the lawyer, like the 
just a lot of the middlemen who worked on actually making the adoption happen. Yeah, and by the way, you know, I brought this, I brought your story up to somebody the other day, and this is somebody who's a, a young, successful, successful entrepreneur in Guatemala City who's from Guatemala. So I say that I, cl- I say that because I, I, I just want to say that we don't know, but you know, this person told me, yeah, you know, I've heard a lot of stories that a lot of that, some of that, a lot of the families thought that money might be going to the actual like birth mother and her family. And so much of it was going to all these middlemen. Now, that's not to say that middlemen like adoption agencies don't do good work and things like that, but I'm sure there was a lot of corruption involved. And this person was very clear to me. They thought for sure there was a lot of corruption. That's probably why the prices were so high as mm-hmm. well, because they, they weren't giving as much and they wanted you know some for their pocket as well, right? But with that said, 20000 maybe up to 40000 just to pay the adoption agency and all the services that doesn't include the actual raising of the child too so we can't forget that cost that the family back in the states or europe or wherever is going to bear uh so um so it seems to me that and i think in the conversation with you earlier um it seems to me that most of the adoptees were probably going to pretty uh pretty well-off families in the united states or at least people who had the means to afford to afford this Therefore, they're living in probably comfortable, maybe upper middle class, maybe even upper class uh, families compared to the poverty that they left back in Guatemala. Yeah, I mean, I would say for the most part, that's fairly accurate. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, I think, I mean, I'll kind of explain this in a, I mean, it's kind of strange to talk about adoption in like a supply and demand situation, but I think in some ways that's the best way to talk about it. You know, there was a big demand from the U.S. to adopt children. And, you know, because the the available children in Guatemala, there wasn't enough. You know, there was corruption involved. I mean, unfortunately, there was kidnappings and just kind of some awful stuff that occurred. But yeah, I mean, the the corruption did creep into it. I mean, I think any time that there's an unregulated market or, you know, there will be corruption, which is, you know, always unfortunate. But... Yeah, I would say, you know, you're right. For the most part, families that did adopt are middle class, upper middle class and wealthy Americans and Europeans. You know, when adoption started, you know, there was no, you can't get a loan like to, to adopt a child. You know, this is, you know, kind of cash up front or, you know, these adoption agencies might have a payment plan. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you need to have the disposable income to be able to adopt. Yeah, so so you know you you're you're uh, lucky to be able to to grow up probably in a, in a nice uh, household, nice lifestyle in the United States. And you know, I think putting that aside for a moment of adoptees, I think a lot of people in a place like the United States, you know, we you know, I speak as an American, we take for granted that we actually live in a country with a lot of prosperity. We have a lot of access to you know we have we have great roads for the most part. Um, we have. You know, great for the most part. Act. You know, we can complain. We complain about a lot of things. We complain about our education system. We complain about the police. We complain about whatever. But when you take it to a, you know, we're we're living actually pretty comfortable lifestyles. We're, we're materially well off, uh, even though a lot of people still have a lot of issues, right? But it's um, and we still do have poverty in the United States, and we still do have crime, and we still do have problems with our education system. But when you compare it in totality to places like Guatemala, you know, we're very lucky uh, to where. We live so it's actually kind of interesting, and, and I don't know if this will be too personal a question for you, but I but I was thinking about when you contrast, you know. So I say this, and let me let me let me uh, preface it with this part of the question. I have a friend, my friend Vance Lupus, who has run um, 
a, an organization in he's based in Miami. It's an organization in Florida called the Children's Movement of Florida. And I listened to Vance and the guy who was the founder of his organization. I want to say it was David Lawrence, maybe seven or eight years ago. I listened to a presentation they gave. And he was talking about children in Miami who are just a few miles apart, but how different their life is uh, just based on the zip code they were raised in. All the way down to brain development. Because in the first couple years of your life, actually, is how much your brain develops. And a lot of it could just be your education level. Like the fact that if you if you grew up in the ghetto to a single mother who's, you know, maybe the father died or left the family or is in prison or something like that, the, the mother is never around, raising a, a ch- child in poverty. This child is, is not having a mother who's reading to them at night, who's not, you know, they just, they, they just don't have the access and the means and all that stuff. Go just a few miles away in like a nice suburb with a well-off family, they're doing all the right things that you know everybody's telling them to do to raise their child right and nurture it right and all this stuff. And you know we're living in it's such an advanced uh, period of civilization in sense in that way. But he was, but it was interesting the contrast of just the difference of where somebody is raised and the type of family they're raised and how that is a dramatic difference in their life, uh, including down to their brain development. So I just say that like, uh, do you see this? whether it's for yourself or other adoptees, kind of the contrast in the life that they've been able to live in the United States versus, you know, had they never been adopted and the, and the kind of maybe life they live in Guatemala? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think it's a complex answer. You know, I mean, everyone has their own kind of unique experience. So, I mean, I'll, I'll speak on my own. Uh, I mean, but yes, I mean, in some ways, I think the... Guatemalan adoptees are almost an example of what Guatemalans could accomplish if, you know, we had better access to education, you know, we had better opportunities here, better, just be- better job outlooks for the majority of the population. Um, so, yeah, b- very much so. So then that gets us to the next part. So you start this amazing organization, Adoptees with Guatemalan Roots. It seems like the mission is to try to connect other adoptees. Uh, to your organization, but primarily to Guatemala. So tell us about your mission there. Yeah, so I mean, our mission is, you know, we want to, you know, advance the education on the topic of adoption from Guatemala. I mean, that's our official mission. But what that looks like in reality is, you know, these are, you know, the 50,000 children that were adopted, you know, many, you know, haven't connected with Guatemala. We don't know Spanish. We don't know much about our countries. You know, thankfully, my parents were interested in teaching me about Guatemala as a child, but some people know almost nothing about their country of birth. And one kind of unique thing is, you know, if you're born in Guatemala, you're a citizen for life. So we are all Guatemalan citizens, meaning, you know, we can have passports, we can vote, we can, you know, even run for office here. And it, you know, part of what our mission is, is yes, you know, we want to connect people back to Guatemala. We want them to learn about their our culture. You know, we want to connect and uh, be able to talk about some of these shared experiences being adopted. You know, I was raised in a, in a, you know, I didn't know any other Guatemalans. I was the only Guatemalan in my, I mean, pretty much my whole life. I, I went to a private prep school in Minneapolis where I was, probably one of the only non-white children. 
so, I mean, those kind of experiences kind of shape how you see the world. But, you know, one of the things like our long-term goals is we are Guatemalan citizens, but we're Guatemalan citizens that the Guatemalan government, and I'd say like the general Guatemalan diaspora around the world kind of is not aware of. Um, but we're a really well-educated group of Guatemalans who have access to a lot of opportunities to uh, whether it's educational or even, I mean, there's other adoptees who are entrepreneurs who have companies or, you know, there's families who have companies and who have significant access to significant amounts of capital. Yeah, that's great. And it's you make a good point there, too, because in Florida, we see a lot of Guatemalans. Um, maybe some have come as migrants. Maybe some have just come as extended family members or who are already there. But the average American, going back to what we think of Guatemala or what we think when we hear Guatemala, I think the average American, the first thing that comes to mind are the migrants that have left Guatemala, taken a very arduous journey through parts of Guatemala all the way through Mexico to get to the border. And of course, right now, as we're talking, there's a a massive crisis at the U.S. border with so many people coming in from all sorts of countries, uh, but particularly a lot from Central America. But that's what we see right and that's what we see we see these people leaving a place so this place must not be great if they're leaving that's kind of the other thing that's kind of reinforced in people's minds but also i will say this with that said i don't know a single person who maybe this maybe people they could be pro-immigration anti-immigration they don't care either way but the actual guatemalan immigrants they know in their communities the people that are cutting their lawns, the people that are running, uh, that working at restaurants, you know, whatever it is, construction, they're like, well, these are some hardworking people. They're nice people. Um, and so even in the U.S., people do have great experiences with Guatemalans. So with that said, the, the type of Guatemalan people that most people in the U.S. interact with are people that come from, you know, less means. And, and so what's interesting is most of the, uh, it seems like most of the adoptees during that period are probably, you know, living at least in like middle class to upper middle class uh, households in the U.S. and getting a pretty standard um, U.S. American experience um, in terms of the education and the lifestyles and stuff that they're going through. So that's that's interesting. Um, and I wanted to say that with, your, uh, with what you're doing with this great organization, Adoptees with Guatemalan Roots, uh, you came back here and you've even met with the president of Guatemala Tell us a, a little bit about your meeting with the president and what you were there to talk to him about. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we really do want to help adoptees connect back. And since we are Guatemalan citizens, that means we can get passports, DPs. You know, we want to be able to get access to our birth record, our birth certificates, which is kind of the first step to get either of those things. Um, but there's also interest to find birth families. So one of the things we had requested and this was kind of just, it was, it happened one night. I was, you know, sitting, just hanging out with one of my friends. He's a, uh, another co-founder of Adoptees with Guatemalan Roots. And we were kind of just brainstorming. And this idea of having online digital access to our records, like our birth certificates at RENAP was kind of just this pipeline dream. And I reached out to some contacts here because I was coming to Guatemala in a couple weeks after that conversation. I was just like, what would we need to do to get digital access for adoptees at RINAP? And 
I actually came down here, you know, this, the contact said, you know, that she would help, you know, see, get a, get a meeting with Renap. And, it, you know, what Renap said is, you know, this is a reasonable request. What but, is Renap? So it's the National Registry of Persons here. Okay. It's kind of like the American Social Security, if that might be an equivalent. But yeah, so, it, you know, they came back and they said, you know, you're going to need presidential approval for this. So, um, thankfully, I brought down a suit. I usually bring down one just in case there's an important meeting. But it was kind of a scramble to get a proposal written up. Uh, you know, the president agreed to give us 30 minutes. I think it was a... How do you... Well, hold on. You need presidential approval. And, and then all of a sudden, you have a meeting with the president? How does this happen? Yeah, so... We have spent a lot of time and effort doing networking here in Guatemala, and uh, that's I mean that's something that I've spent a lot of time. I'm mean, just coming down here, but also just you know getting you know having FaceTime with people here, and kind of sharing my story, but sharing the story of our of our organization. And uh, yeah, we made a contact here, and she was willing to kind of go to bat for us and you know, use her connection that she had at RENAP and then with uh, one of the, I think it was the Minister of Culture to ask if this would be possible. Wow, that's incredible. So you, so you, you, you have your suit, you're suited up, you're ready to go, you go see the president. He gave you 30 minutes. How, what was that like? Uh, I mean, I was definitely a bit nervous. We had written the proposal up like a one pager because I mean, just in case like we weren't able to get through everything, uh, in our 30 minutes some something that he could read like on his trip so we were actually meeting with him in his helicopter hangar at the airport and the idea was we'd give it him a, the one pager he could read it after the meeting uh on his helicopter ride i think he was going to way with tenango uh but yeah so we had but one of the things that we had included is you know we've always our thesis has been it's in the best interests of the guatemalan government to help adoptees because, you know, we are a group of well-educated uh, Guatemalan citizens and, you know, we, we can be an asset to this country. So we included, you know, things like, you know, this could help athletes play for the Guatemalan national teams. This could help with future foreign investment in the country. We talked about, you know, potential, you know, new sales of passports and DPs. And we put some numbers on there to really just kind of provide some concrete numbers, you know, we weren't trying to pursue this as activists. You know, we're trying to pursue this as business people, entrepreneurs. So, and that, I think that's kind of our approach has stood out from, you know, there's other countries where adoption was quite popular and, you know, they've always approached it as activists. And we really wanted to avoid that in part because we're not looking for a 20 year timeline. You know, we're trying to get stuff done today mm. or on a much shorter timeline. So yeah, we included all that information in the in the one pager, and uh, yeah, so we got there a bit early. I think is the minister of culture picked us up, drove us to the airport, and you know we were seated. And we had coffee and uh, pastries. You know the president showed up. Everyone kind of stands up, and he came in. You know I didn't speak Spanish super well back then, so. It was kind of just like doing my best to to get through the presentation. But there was did one. You, did you give it in Spanish? I did Spanish and you know uh, Spanglish. Spanglish. Did some English when I, I couldn't get I the point across. I don't know the president. I I mean I know who, who kind of who he is, but I does he? I mean I imagine he's a well-educated man. I'm a, Matt. Does he speak English? 
he speaks some English, but not much. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, there was kind of one moment where I was just really stumbling through the presentation and the minister of culture kind of put his hand on my shoulder and he's like, hey, it's okay. Like, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. So, I mean, that kind of having that help there really made this presentation go a lot easier. That's great. Well, it's nice. I, I imagine that, you know, I was just thinking about that when you said that. I imagine that if you're any president of any or, of any country, probably half the people, you probably just think the whole world is nervous, right? Because like everybody's <laughs> probably just nervous every time they're giving a presentation to you. Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, um, no, that's great. And so what was the president's response or the Guatemalan government's response to what you're trying to do? I mean, they, they approved some things. Yeah. So, I mean, in the meeting, I mean, it sounded like he was interested. Uh, it sounded like he wanted to find out more. We kind of just gave the one pager after, you know, our 20 minute presentation and just kind of conversation. It was actually funny. Halfway through it, he decided to like call somebody and like, I'm not really sure what's going on here. To me, it's like, is he blowing us off? Like, what, what's going on here? But he had made a call to somebody at, I think it was at Renap, basically asking, like, hey, like, is this possible? What can I do? So it turns out it was a good thing. Um, but it was kind of just one of those, you know, him just talking on the phone for about five minutes. While yeah. Yeah. So we kind of just went silent and kind of listened to him talk. Mm. You know, finished the presentation, got a picture, and then he went off on his helicopter and... Uh, you know, honestly, I wasn't sure what would come of this. You know, I'm sure he gets tons of proposals for projects and things. But about a couple weeks later, I got a request from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying like, hey, can we get your number? We want to approve your request. And, you know, we want to work with your organization and form a partnership here to do two things. We want to give you all the digital access you requested. And then we also want to talk about doing a free birth family search provided by the Guatemalan government, which was great. Um, you know, that's something we had wanted, we had asked for, and basically they were going to provide a way for adoptees to submit their lo uh, information at the local Guatemalan consulate around the world, and then they would help them find their birth families. That's incredible. I also noticed uh, if you go to your website, guateroots.org, uh, you have something there about f helping people finding their birth family. So th it doesn't really matter if they want to reinvest in Guatemala or do anything like it. It's just about wanting to reconnect with their birth families. There's a, there's a pathway that you're helping to provide. Yeah. So that service is provided through the National Council of Adoptions here. And we kind of worked with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to facilitate that. So, I mean... It's still kind of crazy. I'm still surprised that, A, that the Guatemalan government went for this plan, but also they implemented it within six months. Like, the program was live. We met with President Giomatai in January of 2021, and the program launched in, I think, officially, like, end of May 2021. That's incredible. For something like that to get done by any government, much less the Guatemalan government. <laughs> That's that's fast tracked. That's really great. So that's yeah. that's awesome that they did that. They were open to it. By the way, you know, I just I always think about uh, all these entrepreneurial and innovation terms. And I mean, this is collaboration. I mean, this is a collaboration between a nonprofit and a government and the people that are you know that are involved with your nonprofit. So that's really incredible. So you ha are you you work? Uh, am I correct if I say this the right way? You work in private equity. 
Uh, so right now, say that. Yeah. yeah, so I've worked in finance on, for quite a while, but about a year ago, I've gotten kind of back into the tech startup side of things. Mm. So I'm a lead engineer at a tech startup called Civic Eagle. And that's in Houston? Uh, or where are you based? It, it's based out of Minneapolis. Okay. So it's I actually got connected with them through the the current CEO is a good friend. Uh, we have a good a mutual friend, and it was actually the mutual friend is a was a other co-founder from the mural that startup that we I had had with him back in my early twenties. So when the they were looking for somebody to lead a lot of their engineering, uh, we were able to connect that way. That's great. So they're based in Houston, and are, where are you based? Uh, so, so they're based, I mean, in, they're based uh, in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. I'm Sorry. based out of Houston. You're, you're in Houston. Okay, great. Um, and you've also taken an interest in personally investing back in Guatemala. Tell us a little bit about uh, your interest and maybe some of the things you might invest in. And actually, if we have a product around here, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll show it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, there's that paper that you mentioned that I had written, and uh, about two and a half years ago, I had really started to realize that, you know, there are investment opportunities in Guatemala, and uh, for entrepreneurs here, it's just difficult to get capital to start your project. You know, the banks are here a bit risk adverse, so getting like a traditional business loan that you might get in the U.S. is not common, um, and then you know. There's not a lot of venture capital or private equity firms here. I mean, there's a few. But Episode 121, Fernando Pontaza, Invariantes, right? Yeah. So, so you heard from him. He was the first venture capital fund in Guatemala and just started in 2015. He told me on that episode, so you go back to episode 121, um, that I think there's been at least one more venture capital fund, even bigger than his, that has started since. But to think only eight years ago was the first venture capital fund. So it makes your point, the point you're making. Yeah. I mean, and it's really exciting to see firms like that starting here, but yeah, I mean, you either have to have significant capital or relationship with the banks in order to, to build a company here. And so, yeah, I had written this report and, you know, I have a background in computer science and data modeling, and I was able to model through a lot of research that I think the global Guatemalan adoptee community has a net worth of about $40 billion. And when I say that, I mean, so like adoptees like myself who are adults and then our parents. And I think kind of as that generational transfer of wealth happens from the kind of that baby boomer generation to millennials and gen, I think, yeah, gen Z in the next 15 to 20 years, I think you're going to see the amount of Guatemalan citizens who are millionaires or multimillionaires who are inheriting a lot of money kind of just skyrocket as far as uh, Guatemalan citizens who have capital to invest in companies here. So, you know, this report that I did and like uh, $40 billion, it's like 60, around 60% of the Guatemalan annual GDP in 2020. It's like, this is a big amount of money that's out there that is held by Guatemalan citizens or parents of Guatemalan citizens. Wait, and this is just the adoptees. Yeah. Yeah, because that doesn't even count the people who immigrate right. to Guatemala that are sending money back to their families. Right. I mean, and that's like another big sum of money, I think. I don't know the current numbers, but at least the last 2022, it was about on average about a, a little over a billion dollars that's being sent back in remittances every month from Guatemalan migrants. 
That's amazing. But yeah, but I mean, forty billion uh, net worth among um, the Guatemalan adoptees—that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So so, it, so this I, it sounds like this is feeding into your mission to inspire some of those adoptees to take an interest in their home country. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of, this was kind of the way I was thinking about it. I had put this paper together. I'd done some research on it and I just really saw the potential here. It's like, what are we going to do with this potential? Like there's something that's got to be done here. And I think foreign investment is an opportunity. I mean, there's people here who need jobs. I mean, you talked about, you know, the migration crisis that's happening at the border, you know, regardless of what you think about that, you know, there's people here who need jobs, they need, uh, you know, economic opportunity. And, uh, you know, as Guatemalan citizens and as Guatemalan citizens who have an interest in learning about our country and wanting to come back, I'm always shocked at how many adoptees are interested in giving back to, to Guatemala, even though, they didn't grow up here and some have very little knowledge of the country. There's just, I mean, in some ways it's natural to want to know about your origins and return to, to find out more, but that desire to, to help the country, uh, has been really great to see. And I, I mean, I think there's many ways to do that. You know, you can do NGOs, you know, there's a lot of needs here, but I think one area that's not being addressed is, you know, investing in companies here, providing jobs, so uh, yeah, I've made a an investment. At, I can show the the bottle yeah. here, but it's a cacao liqueur company called Mil Alas. And in English, it's like a thousand wings. Mil so, Alas. So it's M I L A L A S. Yeah. So it's it's only available here in Guatemala right now, but we're hoping to export to Europe uh, this year. We actually. And, and what is it exactly? So it's a cacao liqueur. Cacao. So it's kind of like a chocolate liqueur. Yeah. Yeah. I've had it here once. I think this may be, so Uwe and Lynn have this here, and I think this may be the thing that sparked the conversation when she was going to grab me something else off the shelf and saw this and said, oh, there's a young man here you need to meet that's been here that you need to meet, and that was you. Uh, I think that may have sparked the conversation. But um, So anyway, I had this the next time I was here after you and I talked because I didn't really know what to think of it the first time, to be honest with you. It's kind of like a sweet liqueur. It's probably yeah. not something I would normally have, but... It's kind of cool to try, um, and some and for some people, uh, this is something really, really unique. Uh, especially so if you're ever visiting Guatemala and you wanna you wanna find this stuff, uh, it's, it's 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 yeah. Can you explain a little bit again with the cacao liqueur? I mean, it's, it's yeah, such an interesting process. Yeah, so I mean, cacao is uh, you know one of the main ingredients for chocolate. You know, it's native to Guatemala, and I think Guatemala grows some of the best cacao in the world. Uh, and then, so this product is uh, one of the investments I made that the founder is a Guatemalan entrepreneur and who I had connected with and, you know, kind of with this idea that, you know, that had been brewing in the back of my mind about investing in Guatemalan companies. You know, I tried the product about a year ago and, you know, it was unique. You know, I'm not huge on sweet kind of drinks like this either. But I was like, you know, this is unique. I think there's an opportunity here. And she needed to raise some capital. I was like, you know, I think this would be a first great investment to kind of, you know, just figure out the details, like the legalities of what it would be like for a dual citizen. So I'm a U.S. citizen, Guatemalan citizen to invest in a Guatemalan company. Uh, I mean, the, the long term goal is to create some sort of type of venture capital fund. You know, we're still working on the 
the exactly how that will look. You know, this investment was kind of a personal investment that I made as an individual investor. But to help other adoptees invest in Guatemalan companies that have potential. And, you know, we actually just won an international award at the International Chocolate Awards. Uh, you know, we won the gold, kind of their highest wow. award there. Congratulations. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's done well already. And, you know, there's been a lot of interest from from other, like, uh, importers that want to bring it. Well, it's funny because uh, some episodes back, I can't remember what episode, let's call it 106 or somewhere around there, I had a, I had on my podcast Fernando Edias from... Uh, from Fernando's Cafe here in Antigua. Uh, I know you've yet to visit, but maybe we'll visit today after this interview. Uh, maybe we'll find Fernando there. We'll see. But Fernando, if anybody doesn't remember, and you go back to that episode, um, we had a lot of conversations about chocolate and coffee uh, in Guatemala and the industry and the internal dynamics and all that stuff. So it's funny because the first time you and I talked on the phone, I brought up Fernando's name. And I was like, you know, just based on what I'm hearing about this product, you should talk to Fernando just because uh, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about how great the cacao here is. And Guatemala really shouldn't be importing much chocolate. They, they import too much chocolate here. They should be uh, should be exporting more. And, uh, and you know, we had lots of – it's a lot, very complicated in, in the industry. But I was, in, <laughs> I was in Fernando's Cafe a few weeks ago, um, and he, he wasn't there that day. But I was, uh, as I was passing through the little shop – this caught my eye. He actually already had this in there. So I thought that was interesting. Um, but the other interesting thing, what you say is attracting the investments and the interest by Guatemalan adoptees back to Guatemala. And one thing you said there was, you know, one way to do that is through NGOs and nonprofits. This is like NGO capital here, right? There's so many and they're, they're, they do great work. All the people it's, it's, not to discount the work they do, but um, you know what's really needed is for people to be um, entrepreneurs or for the economic opportunities to exist and for people to be uh, personally empowered mm-hmm. uh, economically. And when you are the recipient of charity, it helps you for that moment, but it doesn't help you for your life and it doesn't help you for... Uh, maybe passing on wealth to the next generation. So there's like this missing link in a sense. And, you know, a great book that I always recommend, it was very eye-opening to me about five years ago, I read it called Toxic Charity. And this book even went further and it was really focused on a lot of charity in like Haiti and other places. But talking about how actually even the charity groups, even with the good intentions, the, um, the recipients of the charity become too dependent on the charity. And so I think the author, I forget the name of the author's, uh, the, the name of the author, but I think one of his big, he was trying to figure out, okay, so how do you help? But people need help today. Like people are starving today. They need food today. They need something today. And that's why charities exist. Um, but how do you help their, their family grow economically where they don't become dependent on the charity? It seemed like his solution, if I remember correctly, was, was microloans. Um, because what happens is in some situations, and you might even see this in like U.S. cities, right? There's a reason why the uh, what is it called? The people that the payday loan things or whatever, right? They're so they're like sharks. They take advantage of poor people. They give them these loans they can never get out of the debt. And this is kind of what happens with charity and even with maybe say U.S. aid for government aid to other countries is you get these these countries become so dependent 
on the aid and the charity and they can never get out of that dependency cycle. So the microloans are something where you give them, you know, really good rates and opportunities to actually grow a business. So, so maybe, uh, I really have a lot of hope that I, things that I see in Guatemala, people like you coming back here, inspiring other people to come back here. And uh, maybe there's a path for those people to invest. Maybe it's through capital, like you're, you're doing with this company here where it's an investment for you, but it's an, but it's, it's capital they need because part of the entrepreneurship ecosystem is entrepreneurs need capital. Um, and so that's really great. So you can grow together with them and you can help people in your, in the country here and they can create jobs here. And then, you know, to appease maybe people like Fernando, right? Like the jobs, the, if the jobs are here, people don't have to leave. Right. right? Like I always think about like, no one wants to leave their country, especially a beautiful place like Guatemala. But but things when things become so desperate that you have to leave, you, you, you have to leave and you have to find another opportunity somewhere. And so Fernando, I remember him telling me on a few occasions and we brought some of our Fearless Journeys trips and we've, we visited with Fernando and he said, you know, the real entrepreneurs in this country are the people that actually left because an entrepreneur is a person that is who takes risk. No. And in some ways, these people said, I'm going to go ahead and take the risk of that arduous journey to the border and find an opportunity in the United States. But he says, we need those people back, <laughs> you know, because they're the ones that really already had that mindset of like willing to take a risk and willing to go do whatever hard work was required. Uh, but maybe if those opportunities were here, they wouldn't have to leave in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> And I think kind of just a couple of things you said really kind of resonate. Yeah, I mean, especially as adoptees who don't have a, you know, our personal connection, as much of a personal connection to Guatemala, you know, being able to invest in a company here really, you know, helps make that connection kind of ha has some ownership in the country. In a way, it's kind of like inserting yourself into the conversation, into the kind of social fabric of Guatemala. And I think that's really powerful. Uh, and really healing in a way. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. Well, I think you're doing great work, uh, Ben. And so if people want to find your work, it's guateroots.org, yeah. the website. Any any other places we could point people to to follow what you're doing? Uh, yeah, and then you can find us on at Mil Alas on social media and our website as well. Mil Alas, this is for the cacao liqueur. Yeah. So uh, can people buy this abroad, by the way? Does it ship? Uh, no, at least right now, it's only available here in Guatemala. So you have to come to Guatemala and uh, Fearless Journeys if you need a trip. Uh, we always have trips to Guatemala coming up here. By the way, yeah, I mean, I think um, the other thing I have to say is I've, I've, had, I've brought more than 40 people to Guatemala since I started being here in 2021. Uh, uh, with the exception of maybe two or three people, none of them had ever been to Guatemala. These are not Guatemalans. These are almost all Americans, one Canadian, uh, and uh, they all... I um, love Guatemala. By the time they leave, they're just like, they don't want to leave. Usually by day two, they're just so impressed. I can't believe this place exists. Um, and even some of that's just being in Guatemala City. They're just like, oh, wow. I didn't know there was a big modern city like what, like here that they didn't feel unsafe in. And they met some incredible entrepreneurs. And then they go out to a coffee farm. And then they go to Lake Atilan. And then they come to Antigua. And, you know, you can't just not fall in love with Guatemala. So I can't imagine if I was actually born in Guatemala and I had never come here and then I come on a trip here, 
like you did when you were 16 and like just be like wow this is an incredible place and this is where i'm from and by the way like the guatemala has some history like yeah. you go back to great civilizations like the mayans and they constructed these incredible cities that they're still finding just as of weeks ago they just laser mapped you know uh and they just said oh my gosh there were these like interstate highway type things uh you know well before henry ford uh and so uh pretty cool that all this stuff exists here and now we're you know people can kind of come and rediscover it yeah i mean it's a beautiful country and and that's one of our goals is to help adoptees realize that you know we we should be proud to be guatemalan like we come from a beautiful country uh i mean the yeah, the cities that the Mayans made, and a lot of adoptees are very Maya. They're very indigenous. I'd say almost eighty to ninety percent are, you know, close to hundred uh, percent Maya. So yeah, to be able to show people like Tikal, uh, to be able to connect them back, you know, at our conference that we're doing in May, we're gonna have, uh, you know, a couple sessions on just learning about like the Maya Cosmovision, like the like the math and science that they did as well as the fabrics. And I, I think that's really healing for people to realize that they come from that history and that it's a beautiful history. That's awesome. So speaking of that, before we end this podcast, I want to go back to that conference in Washington, D.C. because I have a lot of people from the U.S. maybe that might be listening or watching this. I've got plenty of friends in the D.C. area. So tell us a little bit more about the conference. Who's the main audience? Can people who are either not adoptees come and or can people who are not even Guatemalan come? Who can come to this conference? Yes. For? Yeah, so the conference, the audience is just adoptees. Okay, that's your, that's your yeah. audience. Are you, why are you doing it in D.C.? Uh, so we, we chose D.C. maybe four years ago for the first one. It was kind of just, it was a central location. Uh, and then we've kind of just continued to keep it there. Is it because there's Pollo Campero locations in D.C.? Is that why? <laughs> there are some, and we we have had events there, and I think we are going to do a, either a breakfast or lunch there at one of the Pollo See, Campero I knew locations. there was a connection. Actually, where I currently live back in Florida when I go back is Boynton Beach, and believe it or not, which is in the Palm Beach area of Florida, believe it or not, um, there's actually a Pollo Campero in Boynton Beach, Florida. And... Um, so I actually had lunch there a couple months ago. It was great. Uh, the prices, though, are different in yes. Boynton Beach <laughs> versus the Boyle Campero here in Guatemala. But I understand. We've got a lot, a lot of higher living standard costs. But uh, Ben, uh, Ben Fossen, F-O-S-S-E-N, thank you for being an agent of innovation. And thanks for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast, Francisco. This has been a wonderful conversation and really enjoyed being on it. Yeah, amazing. And just to for those of you listening, if you're just listening, you may be listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you get your podcasts, but this is also being recorded for YouTube. So you can go to YouTube and just type in Agents of Innovation Podcast and find us there so you could you could watch this. Please subscribe on any of the platforms that you're listening or watching and Please share. And most importantly, I lo we'd love to hear some of your comments. So please comment on whatever uh, platform. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review it. Uh, we really appreciate, appreciate it. So Because the more ratings, more reviews we get, the more people get to hear stories like Ben's and find the podcast. So really appreciate you, Ben, being here. And again, a thank you to our wonderful friends here at Antigua Cigars. Uh, if you didn't uh, get to watch the podcast with them, Go back and listen to that episode and watch that episode as well. Um, and when you're in Antigua, Guatemala, of course, come visit Antigua Cigars. So thank you so much 
everybody here. Mm.